0: So much for the invitation uh, i'm very pleased to share with you some research that is still ongoing and indeed is part of a broader uh, research program that's uh, running for five years on the concept on fair and equitable benefit sharing uh, in different areas of international law um, and just to just to give a bit of a sense of, of the breadth of the project uh, the idea um, or perhaps most uh, international environmental lawyers, at least, are familiar with the idea of fair and equitable sharing of benefits in a very particular context. So in the context of the Convention on Biological Diversity and its Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources um, uh, and Benefit Sharing. So there is a very somehow niche group of international lawyers and practitioners that are familiar with this concept uh, in as far as the idea of bioprospecting is concerned, so activities of research and development based on the information contained in living organisms. Um, But in fact this concept uh, has actually appeared and surfaced but uh, in some cases to a much lesser degree of development in many other areas of international law. We find it in the law of the sea with regard to deep seabed mining and more recently in FAO guidelines related to small scale um, fisheries. We find actually the the oldest perhaps reference to it in the Universal Declaration on Human Rights with regard to the human right to science, which is very well embedded in other international legally binding human rights agreements, but yet the content of that right remains subject to discussion. Uh, We find it in the ILO Convention on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, and also in ongoing uh, human rights processes including ongoing negotiations for a possible declaration uh, on the human rights of peasants. Uh, But we also find in other areas where perhaps we may not quite expect it to be there in the first place, on the context of freshwater resources, uh, little by little in the international climate change regime, uh, and importantly also in the area of land, um, agriculture and foods. And we have um, a growing number of soft law uh, international instruments that make reference to this idea of sharing benefits. Um, So, one of the first things we've tried to identify is to try and understand in which areas for what reasons this concept is used clearly has a feel-good ring uh, to it, Uh, but of course the fact that it is diffusing so much in international law uh, may not necessarily mean that it is a very good idea or a very uh, fruitful direction for international law to evolve towards, but perhaps uh, a term that is so general uh, that fits easily into different contexts but may mean very different things um, in different agreements. And interestingly enough, all these areas are all areas in which um, international lawyers are quite specialized and don't necessarily talk to each other. So it's quite unusual, I think, for deep sea bed mining legal specialists to have a chat with those working on international climate change issues or uh, the right to food. And yet, somehow um, their own areas of international law refers to this uh, concept, at the very least sounds um, similar. So in our research, we've uh, first of all, tried to understand what kind of issues uh, surround the use of benefit sharing in international law Uh, and beyond the area of bioprospecting, the areas that have emerged are that uh, of the conservation of nature, uh, conservation activities generally, Uh, the use of natural resources, very traditional ones such as mining and logging, and also the use of knowledge. Now, in the context of bioprospecting, uh, there's been quite a lot of international legal developments related to the use of traditional knowledge um, associated with genetic resources. So once again, thinking about bio-based research and development. But the reference I made earlier on to the right to science uh, and other developments show that actually There is a connection there more generally with the production of knowledge, with scientific cooperation and with the use of knowledge more broadly conceived and the concept of fair and equitable benefit sharing. So um, the the multifarious legal materials that we identified as relevant for our purposes also meant that the research couldn't really be taken just by one person alone Uh, and so um, thanks to the European Research Council funding we have a team of researchers who are specialized in some of the key uh, areas I have identified. Um, um, we have a climate change expert and a land and agriculture es- expert and I try and cover um, love the sea biodiversity um, and water but we also have uh, and what we want to do is really compare research across those areas. Um, at the same time however we realize that for how much um, International law materials can give us a sense of why we're using this concept, uh, which is clearly linked to questions of equity in international law. Um, That would only give us part of the picture, and perhaps one of the uh, important aspects of the research would be interrogating these developments in international law with at least some sense of challenges on the ground. So part of the project is also empirical, and it combines law and um, political ecology, Uh, And we have carried out short um, case studies in five different countries in four different regions uh, with indigenous peoples or local communities that are affected or involved uh, in different sectors of natural resources. And uh, one of the reasons for choosing several case studies, as opposed to perhaps going in more depth uh, (coughs) with only one, is that um, there's quite a a sizable amount of non-legal scholarship that has looked at the application of benefit-sharing approaches on the ground, uh, raising um, a series of very um, serious concerns about the concept. not only not supporting uh, perhaps the more vulnerable uh, part in our relationship, but even actually working against its stated purposes, and entrenching um, power asymmetries um, and unsustainable uh, environmental practices. So, uh, but all these empirical studies tend to be focused on one side, and again, similarly to uh, the study of international law in different areas being quite isolated from each other, there's very little comparison across um, empirical, non-legal work related to benefit sharing. So we thought we would at least get a a preliminary sense of whether it is worth engaging in that comparison on the ground and with a view to um, gather certain insights about the challenges of the law and the opportunities, perhaps, of international law in addressing questions of equity and fairness um, related to to the environment and natural resources. Um, A lot of our research is available online as soon as we (coughs) give it a preliminary shape, and the idea is that, as, uh, as this talk also offers an opportunity to engage other researchers as well as stakeholders Uh, in reflecting with us, in making sure we are um, connecting the dots and perhaps also building upon um, other people's efforts, um, as well as uh, trying to reach out to international uh, negotiators and advocates and making sure that our research responds to some of the questions they are um, addressing and perhaps struggling with. So this is just to give you an overview of where we have been on the ground. As I said, looking at different types of interactions with the natural environment, uh, different regions, uh, also different communities with different situations of um, um, uh, participation in relevant decision-making processes, different levels of recognition in their interactions with local and national government, and different levels of pressure from external partners. And I'll start just with sharing some of the preliminary findings from our fieldwork to, to give a sense of the of the real-life complexity uh, that we should, I think, keep in mind in undertaking what is mainly um, desk-based international law doctrinal research. Um, and some of the things that have emerged, interesting enough, even if the context of the different case studies is so different, one has to do with lithium mining, another with... Uh, traditional healers seeking access to uh, national parks, to collect medicinal plants for their practices, certain key challenges have have really uh, very much emerged as common across all these different um, uh, sites. Uh, One is the question of procedural guarantees. The fact that in as far as different actors may be willing uh, and in good faith engaging in discussions on benefit sharing, questions related to access to information, to the availability and accessibility of that information, um, proper guarantees for uh, actual voice, having a voice in the discussions, and particularly access to justice. All of these aspects are key on the ground, and interestingly enough, they're very hardly, if ever, discussed, and certainly not discussed in a systematic um, way at the international level. Um, second, I think the fundamental questions behind um, the desire of these communities to engage in benefit-sharing discussions is not so much about having access to profit or uh, more financial resources, but really a question of recognition or being understood for a particular view about the environment, about the role of man in environment, about the role of development or what we consider development, and really having um, a genuine exchange of uh, worldviews. Uh, and a possibility for different worldviews to come into um, an equal and uh, open dialogue. As I said, for how much I think both in terms of legal and non-legal analysis a lot of attention is paid to sharing profits, so sharing monetary benefits, and that I think is also a reality in terms of everyday negotiations on the ground. All the communities we have uh, worked with seem to eventually place a much greater emphasis on monetary benefits and the protection of their way of life and again questions of recognition very much boil down to um, questions that may have to do with uh, cultural uh, benefits, environmental sustainability approaches um, and other aspects that may have to do with strengthening capacities uh, rather than uh, having access to uh, financial resources. Um, and finally, the last element, which is that, um, that for how much relationships may be more or less successful or broken or impossible to achieve, the, the underlying uh, rationale for for this kind of approach to, to environmental challenges seems to be that of partnership building. The idea of different actors having not only to come together uh, one-off uh, and understanding each other, but very much finding ways... Um, to work together and so that that understanding and recognition really being uh, laying the basis for uh, an ongoing and iterative um, process of engagement Uh, Now usually those processes are of course very costly, maybe very frustrating, maybe very complex and if you think about the the web of uh, national laws that may be at stake, uh, the technicality of the processes um, often communities, in particular Indigenous peoples and local communities are supported by uh, brokers, be those local NGOs, international NGOs, international development uh, partners Um, and we have been thinking about whether that's of course helpful, perhaps needed, but also raises raises a series of other questions about fairness and equity and possibly, once again, different worldviews coming in, in, in touch with each other. So what we've tried to do then is bringing this uh, into uh, the framework of international law and using those <clears throat> understanding from the ground to, um, to questions different areas of international law where the idea of benefit sharing has emerged. And one of the initial difficulties was realizing that, uh, again, without necessarily um, an awful lot of uh, explicit discussion about the rationale, This idea of benefit sharing has both emerged uh, in the context of um, international law regulating interstate relations, so very much to do with addressing equity um, issues between developed and developing countries, but also uh, in other contexts or sometimes even in the same international instrument, it is used to address equity issues in the relationship between governments and indigenous peoples and local communities. Um, Now, again, uh, there hasn't been uh, any legal research in understanding why that is the case, why we use the same concept in two sets of very different relationships, um, but also whether whether there are any interactions between the two and whether um, elements of a transnational nature that may derive from that duality also how that um, that contributes to the understanding and interpretation of benefit sharing. And one of the things I'd like to discuss with you today is, for instance, how this concept has also been, little by little, um, becoming part of the debate on the um, responsibility of private companies um, vis-a-vis international law, in particular, human rights. And so on the one hand, we have quite a few legal subtleties to deal with, and on the other hand, those pressing um, key questions are uh, really challenging the concept to start with. The idea that, as I was mentioning, empirical research, mostly from non-law disciplines, has underscored that this may be a concept that may be an hegemonic one, may be used very much for um, purposes that are opposite to what the concept itself uh, states, and that there are plenty of cases where it has either led to um, elite capture to rubber stamp in unsustainable development projects, uh, and they may be even inherently exploitative. And once again, I think um, international lawyers may, may have engaged with those issues in the context of a particular area of international law. I think there, there is literature, for instance, on, um, on common heritage and deep seabed mining uh, and some of the different agendas behind that concept. But again, this idea of the role of power and the development of a certain concept in international law uh, that is diffusing so much has not quite been uh, addressed by trying to look at the cumulative effects or at least comparatively across different specialized areas of international law. So, of course, to to try and do uh, support the comparing notes from uh, law of the sea, experts with food and agriculture experts, international environmental lawyers, and uh, international human rights lawyers, one of the first questions that the project tried to address was coming up with a common concept, a common core to fair and equitable benefit sharing. They could at least provide a guide, again, for different um, international lawyers to work together. Now the concept is not something that necessarily means this is the only, um, it wasn't meant to provide a comprehensive understanding of benefit sharing because of course depending on different treaties or guidelines in which it can be included and different, um, both objectives of those international instruments and sectors, there are specificities and mechanisms that are quite unique. Um, But the idea was really to identify core normative elements that would allow for that thinking across sectors. Um, And some elements, I think, were more easily pinned down than others. Uh, In some ways, the idea of benefits is probably the one that is more um, clearly understood across the board. Even in those international instruments where we don't clarify that up front, the idea is that benefit sharing is not just profit sharing, there is um, an expectation that both monetary and non-monetary benefits will be shared. Um, Now, whereas in some agreements such as the Nagoya Protocol, we have a list of benefits and we get a better sense of what we are discussing here, uh, whether we're looking at um, capacity building as opposed to uh, the sharing of knowledge uh, and the strengthening of scientific cooperation. In other regimes, uh, this is something that's left then to contextual negotiations. Um, again, the idea of fairness and equity, one could have related that to the ongoing debate in international law about equity and the role of law there. It's not a debate that, of course, is either an easy one or a settled one. Uh, but I think for our purposes, the observation was that for how much um, benefit sharing is usually qualified by um, the adjectives fair and equitable... Uh, no international instrument really engages in spelling out what that dimensions of equity and fairness means. Usually this is left to uh, further negotiations. So in the case of the law of the sea, there will be further negotiations spelling out modalities and approaches to sharing the benefits deriving from mining in the deep seabed. Uh, in the context of the Nagoya Protocol, this is left to private contractual negotiations between researchers and providers of genetic resources. Um, And even in in those systems where we have a whole mechanism developed internationally for sharing benefits the question of fairness and equity is somehow assumed it is expected that that is what the concept works towards but it's really not uh, spelled out Uh, and that also makes then the challenging of different um, uh, practices in interpreting and implementing this concept uh, more difficult. Now, the, the intuition of the project, and this is something that we will go into more details as we move into uh, one particular area, is that um, fairness and equity, at the very least, convey an idea of both procedural and substantive concerns. Uh, and that perhaps where international law may, may leave that um, undefined uh, human rights standards may play a role in defining either the procedural um, dimensions, questions of due process, and perhaps proportionality, but also perhaps the substantive one. And non-discrimination, for instance, has emerged as one possible way to fill with content that um, assumed um, expectation about the concept. But I think that it's really the word sharing there that seems to be the key to understanding what this idea in international law is about. Uh, And piecing together different bits of uh, interpretative guidance um, related to all these areas of international law I mentioned, There is a certain common message emerging about the sharing being um, a process where agency is really key, where different actors, be those developed and developing countries or governments and communities, will engage in a dialogue, a concerted dialogue that's most likely of an iterative nature, where the understanding you know, of what different uh, different parties may see as benefits and how these different parties may agree about the sharing of them and who the beneficiaries may be, that's what sharing is about. It's not a univocal, uh, one-way flow of benefits. It's not any flow of benefits. Mm-hmm. It's really part and parcel of um, a, a process of dialogue and partnership building. So this idea of... Uh, at the outset, recognizing um, others as equal um, interlocutors and engaging in a process of mutual understanding with a view to empowering uh, particularly those that perhaps are the um, uh, the, the weakest uh, in the uh, in the relationship now I realize that this sounds um, perhaps a bit um, optimistic, and again, it very much um, contrasts with the reality uh, we have identified in the field. Um, and in that sense, it shows how uh, this international guidance that is dispersed across these different processes is still very much um, uh, little studied and little used uh, vis-à-vis um, discussing more openly in different fora, be internationally, regionally, nationally or locally how to implement relevant international instruments uh, on sharing benefits. Um, The the other question, and I have there two question marks, not only one, is, well, what are the contours of benefit sharing? Who are those that will benefit from this concept? And there are certain, uh, I think, beneficiaries are more clearly defined, where we have several instruments in, in international law that point in their direction. In interstate relations, it's often, well, I think invariably developing countries, in the context of intrastate relations, it is more clearly indigenous peoples. Um, local communities are often also referred, at least in as far <clears throat> as international biodiversity law is concerned. But again, <clears throat> sorry, the question there is well, who are local communities and who uh, how do they distinguish themselves from indigenous peoples? Are we talking about uh, nomadic pastoralists, are we talking about Scottish crofters, uh, are we talking about communities that have formed in recent times and managed natural resources as commons, um, are we talking about farmers? And and the, I think we have indications that all these groups, uh, community, um, mountain communities or island communities, could fall into that category, um, but we don't have a very clear, I think, sense of um, who is really part of that definition and who is left out? And there are certain arguments about well, the notion of sharing benefits fairly and equitably perhaps shouldn't be restricted to just certain groups, whether because of their vulnerability or because perhaps of their merit in being ecosystems towards, but it may be a matter of good governance. It may be something that the public at large should be involved or um, you know, should have a particular focus on the poor. Uh, and those questions, I think, are, are the ones that, um, for, for the time being, remain unanswered. I mean, they do find resonance in discussions in international human rights law about um, evolving understanding of who holds, um, of human rights holders, um, and it may also very much boil down also to conceptions, perhaps, of justice and how international law responds to different conceptions of justice. Um, so to go perhaps more now into the topic that I want to discuss and to make the discussion less abstract and more practical, one of the areas that we've been looking at is really um, the cross-fertilization between uh, international human rights law in as far as indigenous peoples are concerned and uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is a multilateral environmental agreement that in addition to focusing on um, Nature protection concerns also has provisions um, uh, aimed to recognize and protect uh, the role of indigenous peoples and local communities as uh, ecosystem stewards and as holders of a unique type of knowledge about the environment that derives from their uniquely connected uh, ways of life with nature. Now the convention is not necessarily an, an obvious uh, area where to look for. Um, cross fertilization with human rights and actually if any of you has had the opportunity to perhaps assist to some of the negotiations that occur every every two years, it's probably a site where you instead get a very good sense of um, the opposition at least of certain countries to certain developments related to indigenous peoples Um, and in fact some of the reticence, reticence in fully embracing, for instance, the standards that are now encapsulated in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that very much arises in the context of um, negotiation among states of the Convention on Biological Diversity. So if you read the Convention or if you read the decisions that are adopted by its um, uh, parties, which are soft law, you hardly ever find any human rights terminology. Um, And you also find very convoluted language which will probably um, dissuade you from from going any further. Uh, But nevertheless, the process of negotiations under the Convention is quite open to inputs from Indigenous Peoples' representatives. Uh, They are able to table texts, to have interventions during negotiations, and there are certain champions among the CBD parties who usually support um, those, um, those inputs. And even the you know, whether it, it may be quite difficult to assess to what extent uh, we have, let's say, a cosmopolitan lawmaking process within the convention, um, I think it is fair to say that at least some instruments have been able to convey the concerns uh, as well as the experiences and the suggestions of Indigenous Peoples representative. And some of the uh, guidelines that have been adopted very much provide that... Um, reflection of how international law may, uh, may guide interpretation and application in a way that supports um, the views and, and responds to the concerns of indigenous peoples. So in particular, I'll point out to the Aquicon guidelines on uh, socio-cultural and environmental impact assessment. So, so uh, environmental impact assessment is a very common approach in environmental regulation. It can be a highly technical, very um, scientific one, and the whole point of the guidelines was saying, well, when we're looking at possible developments in areas that are traditionally used or owned by indigenous communities, we can't limit those exercises to environmental concerns. We need to bring in the sociocultural elements, and through that, um, as we will discuss in more detail, but very much bring in concerns that may not be termed uh, in human rights uh, language, but may very much concern the values. Um, that human rights are there to protect. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, whereas the Convention on Biological Diversity has not necessarily been studied a lot by international human rights lawyers and perhaps has even been seen with a certain suspicion, there has been um, quite a lot of normative activity that is now increasingly being picked up by international human rights bodies with a view to Um, understand questions in which uh, we have um, natural resource development or we may have conservation activities and risks of violating or actual violations of the rights of indigenous peoples. And you have listed there quite a few um, sources. Some have mostly to do, I think, with the Inter-American Court of Human Rights who has engaged increasingly... Um, not only in spelling out uh, how um, the the safeguards for the protection of indigenous peoples' rights in the context of development and conservation, but also has done so increasingly relying on um, the intergovernmental agreement reached uh, in the context of the Convention on Biological Diversity to provide uh, more concrete suggestions about how perhaps um, high-level abstract. Uh, safeguards in international human rights law very much apply once we get into the nitty-gritty details of an environmental impact assessment, (coughs) licensing and permitting processes, uh, and so on. In parallel, and I think very much in line with what has been happening um, in uh, regional human rights bodies at least, um, also there have been quite a few... um, international human rights processes, either by the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Issues, particularly former Rapporteur James Zanaya, but also um, the UN um, uh, Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and other bodies that have um, engaged in the same thinking in as far as business responsibility to respect human rights is concerned. So those safeguards um, that have to do with environmental impact assessment free prior informed consent, and fair and equitable benefit sharing, they have been identified uh, particularly by the Inter-American Court, but also very much upheld by the African Commission on Human and People's Rights as the cornerstone uh, for the protection of indigenous and tribal people's rights um, in natural resource development. Those standards also seem to make sense when we look at the relationship between Uh, private business companies, and uh, indigenous peoples. Uh, And also in those instruments, in this um, guidance provided by different um, um, bodies, we find the same reliance on uh, CBD instruments, with a view to spell out how uh, those safeguards take life in the context of natural resource uh, decision making and processes. Um, of course, I mean, the, the the guidance there is interesting, but it raises quite a lot of issues that remain to be worked out. Uh, among the ones that I uh, engaged, I think, a bit more, of, first of all, there's the question of whether we're only looking at procedural safeguards or there is a substantive core to this um, approach. Uh, also, the terminology on benefit sharing varies quite a lot, particularly uh, in the context of the uh, human rights processes, so it's unclear whether or not um, the same standards that we use in the CBD and the idea of fairness and equity, how that plays out and what kind of um, significance it has in an international human rights context. And, and then a practical question about whether or not beneficiary overlaps or somehow um, is another term for looking at questions of compensation. And it's true that, again, the terminology in all these um, sources in international human rights law doesn't quite help um, making that um, concept clear. So what what, um, uh, the paper I'd like to discuss with you does is trying to um, understand uh, not only the extent to which today uh, the two bodies of international law have spoken to each other, in clarifying those safeguards and particularly the role of fair and equitable benefit sharing in there, but also whether um, it is possible to uh, push this mutually supportive interpretation forward and really bring in elements from international human rights into the CBD uh, on those matters on which CBD parties are, are are reticent, and at the same time, whether what is the value added of bringing. Uh, international biodiversity legal materials uh, in the context of international human rights law. Is there anything that those sources can really... um, How can those sources complement what we already have and what is being clarified in international human rights law with regards to indigenous people's rights? And I think one, uh, one of the intuitions I discussed earlier on, I think there's a very clear sense that human rights standards can provide at least one um, one way to fill with content, the idea of fairness and equity in benefit sharing. Um, and this is one, I think, of the key issues when one looks at the Convention on Biological Diversity. If you read the text of the Convention itself, the obligations, those are very open-ended, often qualified by terms such as, as appropriate as possible. Um, so there is no indication or no clear indication of the minimum content, the minimum standard that the Convention sets uh, for states and a lot of leeway therefore left to states in terms of implementation. Now that leeway, that grey area is of course where questions of fairness and equity then become crucial and where states may really use um, either not do enough or or do contradictory things that then very much um, take them far away from the objectives that are um, pursued through international biodiversity law. Now that grey area I think can be limited by taking um, international human rights standards um, into account. For one thing, for instance, um, the Convention and its decisions are always very uh, open-ended as to which instruments are needed for implementation. There's often reference to legal, administrative or policy measures with a view to, say, protecting the rights of indigenous peoples to the protection of their traditional knowledge. Well, from a human rights perspective, that's not good enough, and uh, some of the decisions of the Inter-American Court have very much stressed that we need law to uh, really create um, not only enforceable guarantees uh, for consent and for benefit sharing, but also to guarantee non-repetition of violations. In addition, a lot of emphasis is placed on access to remedies. Another aspect that I think is not very prominently discussed or systematically discussed in international biodiversity law. And again, with very specific guarantees about making those remedies um, real and workable uh, for indigenous peoples. Um, And all of this is is quite key because in addition to this sense of international biodiversity obligations being quite um, flexible in, in how they can be applied nationally, there's also a big question about justiciability. If so much leeway is left to states in implementing their obligations under the convention, when is it possible to really point to a violation? Where is it possible to really challenge um, certain uh, practices? And I think those clarifications coming from human rights that serve not only to clarify what can be considered fair and equitable from a very Uh, minimum standard level can also help in moving forward with discussions about justiciability. So that's quite a big uh, contribution from human rights. Uh, At the same time I think the CBD brings uh, and its guidelines bring another important element to the discussion which is the specific pragmatic guidelines about how then um, how to put in practice uh, those um, minimum standards that are common to the two areas in the context of complex and generally highly regulated uh, areas of national law um, and so what we have there is really if you look for instance at the AquaCon guidelines you have really a step-by-step approach to how these impact assessment processes are carried out and how you input at each and every step uh, information that really allows for considering culturally um, cultural elements social elements and the interaction of those with uh, environmental protection. So it's really quite uh, a demanding process, but also very specific indications of the type of issues that need to be looked into, that need to be documented, the understanding of customary practices, customary tenure, the understanding of different values and approaches, and how that then can be brought together with what is otherwise a very Um, technical and perhaps technocratic approach so my 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 sense is that the contribution of international biodiversity law once we put those um, sources of interpretation together is really that of making um, international human rights standards much more uh, operational and and clarifying how they can be made operational and I think, I mean, in, in this work, I think one of the questions the project had in mind this idea of clarifying where the substantive concept, the substantive dimension of beneficiary is, and what the procedural one means have become clearer. Um, on the one hand, um, I think those indications of partnership and dialogue uh, come quite, um, quite strongly from the work, for instance, <clears throat> of the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples' Rights Uh, and his idea of how benefit sharing plays out among the safeguards um, to protect the rights of indigenous peoples to natural resources. Um, But what I found perhaps more interesting is the discussion of the African Commission on um, human and people's rights in the ender case about the substantive content of benefit sharing and the reference to the right to development and the idea of development being both about choice and about the capabilities to pursue a certain vision of development. That then I think helps to explain that when we look at benefit sharing, it's not enough to think about monetary and non-monetary benefits, but thinking about the rationale and the possible objectives that those benefits can uh, can help achieve. Um, And in in international human rights debates, very much the question is uh, how through these processes of consent we can enhance or um, ensure that the control of indigenous peoples on uh, ways in which natural resources um, are considered is is key. And I think that's a key element that is not quite so clearly uh, reflected in discussions on benefits and the context of the Convention on Biological Diversity. At the same time, and again, that's the pragmatism that comes from uh, biodiversity law we might not necessarily find in the international human rights context. There's also the realisation that control comes at a cost, controls, bear risks, and recognizing uh, or legally protecting control of a certain resources may not be enough for indigenous peoples to then exercise it. Um, And there is need to support, uh, be that uh, in terms of complying with different levels of regulation, in uh, building capacities, um, in making those uh, different forms of knowledge talk to each other. And again, creating uh, partnerships with um, perhaps government actors or others that may also be involved either in conservation or, um, or development. So what, what we see there is really that control and support are two facets that somehow feed into each other and for how much at a principal level control uh, is really key by itself it may not quite uh, be enough to really realise um, the rights of indigenous peoples. Uh, and I think that that's quite a helpful distinction that I haven't seen really play out in the context of discussions in international environmental law. Uh, it's a bit of a, a spe- speculative work at this stage. But I think, again, thinking about how we can um, question whether international law through this concept is really addressing equity and fairness, it's, it's an important distinction to be kept in mind once we look at contextual identification of benefits and whether or not those benefits really respond um, to these two facets um, of the question. I think the the other aspect that's quite interesting in trying to bring these two areas of international law uh, more together is also that both in international negotiations, and I've just come back from Cancun with new international guidance were adopted on the protection of traditional knowledge under the Convention on Biological Diversity, But also on the ground, so our case study in Argentina about indigenous peoples uh, um, opposing lithium mining projects in an area that's very dry, and where their access to water may be be undermined for goods. So both at these levels of negotiations, usually all the attention is focused on, on consent, on the process of consultation, perhaps on having appropriate access to information and to the process of environmental assessment. And benefit sharing is seen as something that's there, that might be actually used to muddle the waters, to get consent, uh, so as a threat in a way to the process, to the um, genuine effort in the process, rather, that, uh, rather than a safeguard that plays together with the other two. So I think there is there has been a missed opportunity there to understand how benefit sharing is not just something that comes after consent, and it's just a, something that is somehow Um, the result of consent, but can actually work at the stage of assessing impacts and supporting a genuine process of consent. And so the the argument there is that if we bring together um, uh, the information that we gather, the guidance from particularly the Inter-American Court, um, but also uh, the work of the special rapporteurs, with the guidance that has been intergovernmentally adopted by CBD parties, which I should mention are one hundred and ninety six, so really all the countries out there with the exception of the United States, um, we find that then the idea of benefits very much challenges what what's the usual understanding of impact assessment, a process that's to do with preventing or minimizing damage, but it's not very much about identifying. Possible advantages that would come to indigenous peoples if a certain mining or logging project goes ahead. And so that already I think is quite a paradigmatic shift. Not to mention that if we bring in the, the fact that the whole idea of benefits may be very different uh, depending on your worldview or whether your way of life is uh, intrinsically dependent on, um, uh, on the environment then that also means that the whole way in which we understand what may be beneficial and our idea of what development and sustainable development is, is, uh, is going to be challenged and open up to very different um, cultures and approaches and languages. Um, and similarly then, uh, with regards to the, the process of consent, that means that, again, the, the, the process of consultation wouldn't just have to to do with limiting damage or accepting certain limitations to rights, but would also be a discussion about what is it that we want and what is it that indigenous people see as beneficial to them in the first place. And that would mean that the the terms of the debate, the terms of the uh, problem will be radically different. And instead of indigenous peoples being faced with a predetermined set of development options, there will really very much be an an opening of the premises Upon which uh, the process of consent um, and uh, assessment is based upon. Um, so, in that sense, for instance, again, going to you know from the principled to the very nitty-gritty pragmatic approach, um, if you think about what role benefit sharing plays in the context of impact assessment, it means that already the identification, the scoping of the process, the identification of alternatives, that needs to be something. That is based on that open uh, dialogue with different across cultures, uh, and can't be something that's already predetermined and somehow already limits um, the options and the understanding of the problem at stake. Um, then uh, I think there's the thorny question of when is it um, legitimate for indigenous peoples to say no as part of a consent process? I mean, there are questions there; they have been heavily debated. Well, while, while Cons- having a right to consent means having the right to say yes or no, the point is, well this is however not equivalent to an absolute power of vetoing a certain project. So I think the question there is understanding the conditions under which it would be clear to the government and other stakeholders that it is legitimate for indigenous peoples to prevent certain projects from going ahead altogether. And again, I think the notions of uh, fairly and equitably sharing benefits may help to understand that. So the fact that, for instance, in the process of consent, there is no discussion about whether or not the benefits that perhaps the government may see in a certain project are seen as such, if at all, by indigenous peoples, whether other aspects of a project, um, such as the environmental sustainability, the threat to water resources, or the threat to the continuance of certain cultural practices, all of that becomes part and parcel of what the the consultation procedure should be about. And if that is absent, that could already be a reason uh, to say no, because the government wouldn't have quite engaged in good faith and thoroughly uh, in trying to implement those three standards together. Um, um, And finally, I think that the last question, I think, I have come to my own conclusion, but I have to admit it remains quite unclear. Um, But looking at some of the discussions under uh, the Inter-American Court on human rights and questions of compensation when the rights of indigenous peoples are violated in the context of either natural resource development or conservation, um, I think that there is a suggestion that benefit sharing is different from compensation. Uh, There may be some overlap in that Compensation is also forward-looking and may end up in the creation, for instance, of a community fund, may provide both monetary and non-monetary um, compensation, but my understanding is that compensation is, of course, a secondary obligation that is dependent on the existence of a violation and is proportional to, that, uh, to the harm caused by that violation. Now, beneficiary instead is something that comes even before a violation is ascertained and possibly even without a violation being there in the first place, as consent and as impact assessment are to be carried out um, ideally without uh, or before any violation may even be conceived. And so I think the fundamental difference there, even if perhaps modalities or approaches may be overlapping at points, is that benefit sharing is a general and permanent obligation or part and parcel, uh, an element part of. Um, Uh, the indigenous people's human rights to their natural resources Uh, that may that doesn't need to be looked at only in relation to violations but it's very much part of how those rights are fulfilled Uh, now to wrap up and i'm not sure how i'm doing with time uh, but so just to say that those considerations are quite helpful In, in some ways they're helpful in really challenging some of the techniques in environmental regulation that we're quite familiar with. Uh, They challenge very um, embedded practices about how we see a process of development and how we see decision-making related to that process. Um, And they may be quite uh, radical perhaps uh, for some governments, which explains I think why if we stop at the terminologies used in um, individual international legal materials, we find all that variance and all that qualifications. Um, but but, but the, the ideas behind them, I think, in some ways, has as an immediate appeal, it does seem to be um, a workable solution on all sides. And we find this idea, again, of this pragmatic approach, then perhaps also behind the... Um, The references to the same uh, three safeguards, impact assessment, consent and benefit sharing in current discussions on the content of uh, business responsibility to respect human rights uh, in as far as indigenous peoples are concerned. Um, So I assume you're all aware that there is uh, intergovernmental um, consensus on the approach of the UN um, uh, framework on business and human rights, the idea that even if International law has not developed so that private companies are directly bound by international law. There is a growing expectation shared by the international community that international law is not indifferent to companies and that we do expect them to take it into account in their um, dealings and, and decision making. Of course, the UN framework and the UN guidelines on business and human rights are not necessarily very detailed and they do not enter into specific questions of how a certain company may respect the rights of women as opposed to the rights of indigenous peoples or particular rights. So what what I have here on the slide is actually text that comes from uh, several reports of the former UN Special Rapporteur James Zanaya who has tried to fill with uh, specific content the framework uh, the UN framework on business and human rights, and explaining well, if a certain company is faced with a particular situation of having to respect uh, the human rights of indigenous peoples, these are the things that it is um, expected to do. Uh, very much building on the Inter American Court um, case law and other developments. And what you see there is that um, benefit sharing, again, is not, of course, the only safeguard. We have discussions on consent. Um, but it becomes very much something that um, is, should become part of what is the due diligence of companies vis-a-vis uh, international human rights. Uh, and there's a, there's a clear indication that well, this is, not, this is something that perhaps companies may think they have engaged already with. There's quite a lot of uh, examples of um, either charitable approaches or CSR approaches where the initiative comes from the companies. There are monetary and non-monetary benefits there. Uh, But that's not quite the same. The idea here is that this part of compliance with international law or parts of that respect of international law. um, And and it needs to be undertaken with the understanding of what rights are at stake. And again, uh, it's not any flow of benefits uh, without any engagement and without any understanding of what benefits may be perceived as such by indigenous peoples, but very much a process of engaging indigenous peoples as partners in um, business-led uh, development operations. Um, and James Anaya has been working with um, private companies, with questionnaires and other ways to also pick their brains as to what international guidance would be helpful uh, on this point. Uh, many companies noted that, for instance, national law on benefit sharing is not very detailed or helpful and this is something that has been, I think, noted um, elsewhere. Uh, but they did welcome uh, a certain clarification of what international standards should be taken uh, into account. And eventually, um, James and I concluded that, well, what we're looking at here is benefit sharing as both participation in companies' decision-making, so not just a consent that then allows the company to go ahead on its own uh, in developing, let's say, in mining in uh, indigenous territories, but actually making, through consent, creating a process where Indigenous Peoples' uh, representatives will remain part of the discussion about how a certain um, um, project goes ahead, as well as share in the profits. And he mentioned, for instance, minority ownership interests, other opportunities, joint ventures, where um, Indigenous Peoples could be um, for companies to, as a very pragmatic way for companies to show respect for Indigenous Peoples' rights. Now, again, this may seem uh, quite um, radical. I mean, basically the message is from now on, uh, you can't really go ahead with natural resource development in the context of uh, the lands of indigenous peoples or where activities may affect their rights, but you really have to think about integrating them uh, in your own work. At the same time, I think for how much this may be radical, there are cases in which this has been done and unfortunately the results have not been necessarily ideal. It's not that by just using uh, joint ventures or minority ownership, all the problems disappear. There may be all sorts of pressures and difficulties uh, they may be experienced. Uh, So somehow, on the one hand, I think there's um, an interest in advancements in moving from CSR as a voluntary approach, which is mostly left at the initiative of private companies to say and actually you have quite detailed standards internationally and if a company is genuine in carrying its due diligence uh, vis-a-vis um, human rights of indigenous peoples then there are some um, specific approaches about how this um, has to happen. Um, but the reality is that even if we had companies out there who would take this um, to the letter it would still be quite um, a, difficult, um, a difficult approach. But to conclude then, well, why are these uh, indications helpful? In some ways, um, this text comes from reports of the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples' Rights. They may or may not be um, necessarily taken up either by companies themselves or by others. Uh, to some extent, they have been picked up or there's been parallel developments in other um, areas such as the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank has performance standards that I think pick up on some of these ideas of benefit sharing. Uh, you may be familiar with the OECD uh, mult- guidelines for multinational companies in some of the mor- monitoring processes related to those guidelines. Um, for instance, the UK a National Contact Point has given very clear guidance um, to a company saying, well, it's not enough that you contribute to impact assessment. You have to hire an anthropologist to make sure the information provided to indigenous communities is um, understandable to them and to really understand what their issues are, your uh, impact assessment is insufficient. Even if you think you have ticked all the boxes in in terms of compliance with national law, once we take into account international standards, there's actually a much deeper level of engagement with indigenous peoples that needs to come into place. So it may be possible for those indications to have very clear implications no matter what their legal status is uh, and they may be picked up either in contracts between companies uh, and governments, be those investment contracts or more private law contracts. They also provide indications about what national law should be about if we think about the fact that states have primary obligations to ensure that their companies uh, respect international law. And they may be at the very least provide. Um, arguments for advocates to challenge or even perhaps bring to court uh, private companies or the state when these standards are not even, um, um, where current standards are not even near this, um, this identification of the relevance of international law for business practices. So I think I might leave it at that for now, but I hope there'll be questions that will allow me to expand on aspects that you are most interested in. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for this.